Council number two under revival. In these days of continuing and increasing crisis, God is looking for men and women who will lead their people to repentance and self-humbling through united prayer and fasting. The greatest benefactor this age could have is the individual that will bring the ministers and the church back to prayer. The great people of the earth today are the people who pray. I do not mean those who talk about prayer, nor those who say they believe in prayer, nor yet those who explain about prayer, but I mean those people who take time and pray. They have not the time. It must be taken from something else. This something else is important, very important and pressing, but still less important and less pressing than prayer. There are people that put prayer first, and they group other items in life schedule around and after prayer. These are the people today who are doing the most for God in winning souls, in solving problems, in awakening churches, in supplying both men and women for mission posts. The greatest agency put into man's hands is prayer. There is no power, absolutely no power, like that of prevailing prayer. God will do as a result of the prayer of the most humble one among us here today what otherwise he would not do. Yes, I can make it stronger than that, and I will make it stronger for the old black book does. God will do an answer to the prayer of the weakest one here what otherwise he could not do. Listen to Jesus' own words in that last quiet talk with the eleven when he was leaving the upper room and hastening to Gethsemane. Ye did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that ye should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. Amen. That is a part of the purpose why we have been chosen. That whatsoever, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, ye may, he may give it you. May, not shall, but may. Shall throws the matter over on God, his purpose. May throws it over on us, our cooperation. In other words, our prayers makes it possible for God to do what otherwise he could not do. These words were quoted by S.D. Gordon. You can do no more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. He also said, prayer is striking the winning blow. Service is gathering up the results. Now, there are six facts underlying prayer that I'd like to mention. These facts are constantly stated and assumed in the Bible. They are clearly stated in its history. They are woven into every song. They underlie prophetic writings from the Genesis, even to the end of John's Patmos visions. And I'm afraid they have been so familiar and taken for granted so long as to have grown unfamiliar to all of us. Number one, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's his by creation, it's his by sovereign rule. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Second, God gave the dominion of the earth to man, the kingship of its life, the control and mastery of its forces. Third, man who held the dominion of the earth in trust from God transferred his dominion to someone else by an act which was a double act. 
His allegiance by disobedience was transferred from God. And through that, the dominion passed out of man's hands into the hands of another one, the prince who was seeking to get dominion of this earth into his hands. The fourth fact is this. The dominion or kingship of this earth so far as given to man is now, not God's, for he gave it to man. And it is not man's, for he has transferred it to another. It is in the control of that magnificent prince whose changed character supplies his name, Satan, the hater, the enemy. Jesus repeatedly speaks of the prince that is the ruling one of this world, the kingship or rulership of this earth which was given to man is now Satan's. John said, the whole world lies in the hands of the wicked one. The fifth fact, God Almighty was eager to swing this old world back to its original control for his sake, for man's sake, and for the earth's sake. But to do so, he must get a man, a man with a capital M. He must get a man, a man with a capital M. He must get a man, one of the original trustee class through whom and by whom he could swing the world back to its first allegiance. It was given to a man, a man with a capital M. It was swung away by man, it must be swung back by man. And so a man came, a man with a capital M. This man was the head of movement for swinging this old world back to its first allegiance. God Almighty was manifested in the flesh to wit that God was in Christ reconciling this world unto himself. The sixth fact is this. These two, God's man with the capital M, his name is Jesus Christ. The pretender prince, Satan, had a combat. It was the most terrific combat ever waged or witnessed. From the manger to the cross, even until that resurrection morning, it ran. Those Nazareth years, the wilderness, Galilee ministries, Gethsemane, Calvary, and then to the nether parts of the earth where he looked at Satan and said, Give me those keys. He met Satan head on in the nether parts of the earth where he was transferring paradise to yonder world and gave those he transferred a little stop-off visit in Jerusalem, but he came back with the keys. And then on that third morning, he rose a victor. Jesus, God's man with a capital M, the rightful prince, had gotten the victory. Hear me now. Satan knows that he's defeated. But there are four sub-facts under this side of thought. On Satan's side, he refuses to acknowledge his defeat. Number two, he refuses to surrender his dominion until he must. He yields only what he must, when he must, and what is taken and the ground taken must be held against him in the victor's name, Jesus. Third, he is supported in his ambitions by man, man that is consented to his control, and the majority of men on this earth today have assented to his control. And number four, under sub-facts of Satan's side is this. He hopes to make his possession of this earth permanent. He intends to get him a body. He intends to get him a Jesus. He intends to get him a Christ, Antichrist. Now, prayer is this. The victor's only ally is the man or the woman of the original trustee class who will put his or her will, her life, in full touch with the Savior, the Jesus, the man with a capital M. He's the victor. You've got to get yourself out of touch with the pretender prince. 
insistently, incessantly, believingly, claiming that Satan must yield before Jesus' mighty victory. Step by step in Jesus' name, Satan is obliged to yield. He must. He's stripped. He's defeated. He's a defeated foe. He was put to open shame by the man with a capital M, and his name is Jesus. Satan is, Satan is defeated. Jesus Christ is the victor. Satan knows it, and he fears him, and he must yield before his advance and before the man with a little M who stands for Jesus. And he will yield, and he will yield, and he will yield reluctantly, angrily, slowly, stubbornly, contesting every inch of ground, but his crutches will loosen, and he will let go before this Jesus man, this man with a little M, who stands for Jesus and says, in Jesus' name, I come against you. So prayer, so prayer is a man with a little M, giving God footing on this enemy's soil. God needs a man or a woman for his plan, a man in full touch with his purpose, a man praying insistently, a man giving God a footing on hostile soil, giving him a new sub-headquarters on the battlefield, this planet Earth, which was out of control until he swung it back and put it all in our hands, and the Holy Ghost within every one of us, insisting on the enemy's retreat in the name of Jesus Christ, that stubborn foe, he knows he's stripped, he knows he's defeated, he will be routed. That is prayer. Amen. Several weeks ago for my morning shift, and I have a morning and an evening shift, and I, I, I wish I had time for more. There is nothing like prevailing prayer. While I was praying there, a little Jewish lady who has been filled with the Holy Ghost and baptized in the name of Jesus heard another one of our ladies prevailing in prayer. And then little Nikki Terrell walks up to me, the little Jewish girl, and says, Sister Mangan, would you go tell her her prayers are powerful, but she's leaving this out in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ. It's a staggering, tremendous thing that God's purpose for a prodigal world is being held back through my lack of concern, my unwillingness, my laziness, my indifference, my refusing to be a prayer warrior, 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 warrior. The warrior of Nazareth swung it back. Somebody else with a little M or a little L must stand there in his name and say, you give and I'll be here until you do give. The prayers of God's saints are the capital stock of heaven by which God carries on his great work upon this earth. God conditions the very life and prosperity of his cause on prayer. If these things are true, if these things are true, then prayer should be the main business of our day every day, every day, every day, every day. History can be both made and changed by this kind of praying with fasting. These are our mighty weapons to the pulling down of strongholds. This is no mere abstract theological formula. God will intervene in the affairs of nations, churches, families, and individuals in response to his people's supplications, just as he did in the Bible days. God has changed the destiny of nations because his people unitedly fasted and prayed. Bible history will confirm this lesson in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 1 through 20. You will read how Judah was threatened by an armed invasion 
a confederacy of Moab, Ammon, and Mount Seir, and how King Jehoshaphat led the way, led the way, led the way by calling the whole nation to repentance, prayer, and fasting, and worship. People from all across the nation gathered in Jerusalem for a prayer meeting, a prayer meeting, a prayer meeting. Praise and singing came after repentance, after prayer, after fasting. Then they praised the Lord. Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones and with their wives and their children. In response, God dramatically intervened and the entire invading army destroyed itself without God's people using a single weapon against them. Victory without a battle because of repentance and united prayer and fasting and singing. In Jonah chapter 3, we read how the people of Nineveh responded to Jonah's warning of impending disaster by the emperor, proclaiming a total fast throughout the city for man and beast alike. As a result, Nineveh, a heathen city, was spared God's judgment for two centuries, two centuries, two hundred years. This earth had its uh, history rewritten right there at Nineveh. The book of Esther records how the Jewish nation was appointed for extermination. The days were evil. Haman determined to erase them. But when Esther and her maidens and the Jews in Shushan for a period of 72 hours and Esther determined to go before the king, she surrendered her will with this prayer. If I perish, I perish, for I cannot endure to see the evil that shall come unto my people. I cannot endure to see the destruction of my kindred. I cannot stand it. And remember this, God won't put on you anymore and you can stand. And when you decide you can't stand it and go before him, the enemy will be routed and that stubborn foe will be put on the run. She said, I must save my people, whatever the cost. Do you know the whole balance of power within the Persian Empire was reversed? That means the laws of the Medes and Persians were changed. What a victory! The Jews were delivered and promoted while their enemies were defeated and humiliated. Fasting intensified their prayers. God didn't do it without an earth partner. He will not. He chooses not to do it without a man or a woman insisting, 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 insisting that Satan must yield. Jehoshaphat, Jonah, Esther. God is helpless without a man. Ezekiel tells us that in chapter 22, verses 30 through 31 that during a time of national apostasy and conspiracy, God longed to spare the nation. He sought for someone to stand in the gap before him as Moses had done previously when God was ready to wipe them off the earth. And God said, I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge, a man with a little limb, and let him stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore, 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 I have poured out mine indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I recompensed upon their heads, saith the Lord God. Because there was no man with a little limb, no intercessor, he reluctantly poured out his wrath, which was their deserved judgment, that had a man stood in the gap, it would have been averted. Oh, God cannot withhold judgment unless someone intercedes. Why? Why did he not exercise his supreme power and show mercy and withhold judgment, regardless of the lack of prayers of any man? If the church will not pray, God will not act. If the church will not pray, God will not act. If the church will not pray, God will not act. God never goes over the head of his church to enforce his decisions to whom he said, I give unto you the keys. I give unto you the keys. I give unto you the keys. 
and behold, and I am he. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, the first and the last. I am he which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. And I give unto you the keys. Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. He cannot take things out of this church hands after he has placed them there. For to do so would destroy his training program, abort his purpose. Only by bearing this overwhelming weight of responsibility can she, the church, be brought to her full stature as co-sovereign with her bridegroom. This is why he will do nothing he will do nothing. Hear me? He will do nothing. He will do nothing until the church accepts her rightful position and privilege of intercession. If she fails, he just waits. If she will not pray, he will not move. God will do nothing apart from his church. God will do nothing apart from his church. His plan for qualifying this church is through the apprenticeship of prayer and intercession. And it depends on the actions of this church, what God does in this church and in this earth. He will not spoil his plan now by overriding her authority and taking things out of her hands. According to Ezekiel, he will let the whole world go to destruction first. He has no alternative plan. There's been a controversy surrounding the interpretation of John 20 and 23. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. That shocks you, doesn't it? that Christ has delegated authority for the forgiveness of sins to the disciples and hence to the church. But in a very real sense, this is true. By exercising her God-given authority of prayer and faith, prayer and faith, the church opens the way for the Holy Ghost to do his office work of conviction and persuasion. Through the work of the Spirit, in answer to believing prayer of the true church, the sinner is brought to the place of voluntary repentance and faith for forgiveness. And God, the one who alone has power to forgive sins, he does the actual absolution. However, since this takes place only, only, only as a result of the church travail, she is in truth involved in the absolution. Therefore, Jesus could say to the disciples and hence to a holy church, whosoever sins you remit by prayer and fasting, Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. In a very real sense, the responsibility for absolution is in the hands of a travailing church. The bringing of a new life into the human family involves agreement and cooperation of two persons, the loving father and the pure, unselfish mother. And that life does not come into the world without travail. Reflecting this analogy, the divine spirit father and the pure church mother must agree, must cooperate in bringing newborn souls into the family of God. And neither can these be born without travail. There is no easy soul winning. And the work of the spirit is ineffective without the cooperation of a travailing, a travailing, a travailing church. By his own choice, the Spirit alone cannot bring a soul into birth. The cooperation of both is necessary. The church, as a part, as an intercessor, is just as necessary as the Spirit's part. Therefore, by virtue of her organic relationship with Jesus Christ, the Supreme Sovereign, she, the church, holds the balance of power in all human affairs. The church holds the balance of power in all human affairs. Let it grip you. God has done his part for the salvation of the world. The rest is left to the church. The Spirit 
and the bride say come. Say that with me. The Spirit and the bride say come. Say it again. The Spirit and the bride say come. So, my God, have mercy on a church that refuses to accept her position. For it takes both of us to save this world, the Spirit and the bride. Now let us turn from Bible history to Bible prophecy. Joel's vision of the last days, the last days. God warns us of tremendously powerful forces of evil that will be marshaled against us. And in the face of these evil forces, three times, three times, three times, he calls his people to unite in prayer and fasting for the intervention on their behalf. In the third and final call to praying and fasting, God lays special emphasis upon, say, leaders, 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 say leaders, 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 say elders, priests, ministers, blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify past, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, those that suck breath, let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of the closet. Let the priests, let the ministers of the Lord weep, weep, weep between the porch and the altar, out in the forefront leading, out where everybody can see them, let them example it. No, God, don't give your heritage a reproach. Don't let the heathen rule over us. Wherefore should they say among the people, where is their God? Let the elders, let the priests, let the ministers, let us hear it today. Let us get out in the forefront between the porch and the altar. Holy men in the past who changed the whole course of national affairs, revolutionized character and country, subdued kingdoms, obtained promises, wrought righteousness, were all men of incessant prayer. There is no prayer like that of prevailing prayer. Prevailing is prevailing. Elijah prays, fire falls, men fall, a little cloud appears, the rain falls. Elisha prays, waters of Jordan roll back, a child is restored to life. Even in his sepulcher, his bones brought a dead man back to life. Isaiah prays, 104 Four and five thousand Assyrians are dead. Hezekiah prays, the sundial is turned back. His life is prolonged for 15 years. Jacob, fearing for his life, threatened by death, cried out, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. He prays on and on and on all night. The angel is conquered. Esau's revenge is changed to love. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Thy name shall no more be called Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power, and you have prevailed. Joseph prays, delivered from prison, elevated to a throne, spares the nation of Israel. Moses, that valiant leader of Israel, intercedes with God for a backsliding, disobedient, vacillating Israel. God had said to Moses, let me alone that I may destroy them. Moses records this unbelievable record. I fell down before the Lord at the first 40 days and nights and didn't either eat bread or drink water. Yet now thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, but me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. Do you know God rescinded that? Moses prevailed. God surrendered to Moses. Israel triumphed. Oh, Joshua prays, and the sun and the moon stand still, and victory is gained, wins the battle. Hannah prays, Samuel is born. He changed the course for the nation of Israel. Hagar, a heathen woman, with a 16-year-old boy, banished from home, lost in the wilderness, weary, thirsty, hungry, grieved, dying, famishing, cried out, I can't, I can't endure to see the death of my boy. Ishmael is spared. The Bible says God was with the lad. David prays for his traitor Ahithophel. Ahithophel goes out and hangs himself. Jehoshaphat prays. God smiles on a nation instead of turning his back on him. Esther and Mordecai, Mordecai pray. Haman is hanged. Israel is free. Mordecai rides through the streets of the city and the king's chariot. 
Paul and Silas pray, the prison shakes, the door opens, every man's bonds are loose, Philippian jail is born, Philippian church is born, Philippian church is born. Jonah prays, the whale vomits, he's delivered. Nineveh prays, averted God's judgment for two centuries. Daniel prays, God needed an earth partner, though it was time for them to come out of there and go back to Jerusalem. God moved upon a man called Daniel. He said, according to thy covenant, he, and restoration began. God needs us right now to bring about that next, that next dispensation. Samson wasted his strength in brilliant but vain exploits, leaving the Philistines still in possession of the land. What he could not do with foxes' tails tied together, setting fields on fire, slaying a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a mule, carrying off the gates of Gaza, spectacular. Samuel did it with prayer, fasting, and offering sacrifices, and the Philistines came not against Israel. All the days of Samuel's life, one man was mightier than all of the Philistines. He recovered all the territory the Philistines had captured in the days of Samson. No man like him in all the Bible quite like him. Prayer and sacrifice made the difference. This is not foxhole play. This is not five-minute play. This is a man with a little M taking a stand in Christ's stead and saying, I'll not move. I'll not move. You're a stripped, defeated foe. I'm coming in the name of Jesus. I'm coming in the name of Jesus. I'm coming in the name of Jesus. I'm going to stand. And God and I together, the Spirit and the bride, say, we're going to conquer. We're going to take our city. We're going to do it. Are these exceptions to the rule, or do they represent the rule? Hear me. Jesus prayed, prayed much, needed to pray, loved to pray. It became to him like breathing, involuntary. There are 15 mentions of his praying found in the four Gospels. Luke, listen to that. Luke, Luke, Paul's companion, the apostle that set the church to pray. Luke, Paul's companion, supplied 11 of those accounts. Out upon the mountain, Jesus continued all night in prayer. Jesus, say Jesus, the man with a capital N. Lifted up his voice in strong crying and tears, being in agony, he prayed until his sweat became great drops of blood. He refused to go forth to teach or preach until he had prayed. He prayed all night before choosing his apostles. He wept over Jerusalem, and Jerusalem became the city of Pentecost. He wept over Jerusalem, and Jerusalem became the city of Pentecost. He wept over Jerusalem. Have you wept over your city? Have you experienced a Pentecost? He wept over Jerusalem, and Jerusalem became Pentecost. He began his ministry with prayer. He finished his ministry on the cross with prayer. The night before his crucifixion in John chapter 17 and verse 4, he could say, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. How did he do it? He had his times of prayer. He had his places of prayer. He had his constant spirit of prayer. He prayed in the great crisis of his life. He prayed for others by name and still does. And when perplexed, he prayed. If tempted, he prayed. When he was hard-pressed for work, he prayed. When he was lonely and hungry for fellowship for those around him, he prayed. He found it all in prayer. He found his message on his knees. If he was criticized, he prayed. If he was fatigued in body and wearied in spirit, he prayed. There was no emergency. There was no difficulty. There was no necessity. There was no temptation that would not yield to prayer. The greatest blessings of my Savior's life came during prayer. The important ruled him instead of the urgent. He arose a great while before day and went to a solitary place to pray. Are you a Christian? He withdrew into the wilderness to pray. Are you in Jesus' name? He went out into the mountains to pray and he continued all night in prayer. Are you the bride? 
when he victoriously entered heaven, he began his ministry there with prayer for the Holy Ghost to fall upon believers. Can you believe that? When two or three gather in his name in prayer, he is there. He will never stumble over an intercessor. He will never stumble over an intercessor. And he will be praying or interceding for us until the last days of his priesthood, praying, 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 interceding. But someday he will put off his long priestly robe and put on his short vesture and will come to rule and reign as king of kings and lord of lords and together the harvest of his prayers and those of his saints. Then all prayers will be turned into praises of eternal excellency and glory throughout all ages to come. And he said, as my father hath sent me, so send I you, as he is, even so are we in this world. Listen, the apostles gave themselves to prayer, fasting and preaching, and shook the Roman Empire. The plea and the purpose of the apostles was to put the church to praying. Put the saints everywhere to praying is the burden of apostolic effort and the keynote of apostolic success. It will break the deadlock and stranglehold on any situation. It will break the deadlock and stranglehold on any situation. It will break the deadlock and stranglehold on any situation. Then the church, bow the world. Then the church, bow the world. Church to your knees. Church to your knees. The book of Acts of the Apostles is the Acts of Praying and Preaching. It is a story of perpetual progress. The book of Acts is called the Book of Wonders of God in the church. But if you read every chapter, you will find more prayers in it than miracles. There was astonishment, awakening in advance. The shout of triumph and victory rings in every chapter. A sense of awe was everywhere. Prayer was the secret of the power of the apostolic church. Acts 2, verse 42, And they continued steadfastly in prayers, in prayers, in prayers. And they continued steadfastly in prayers. The epistles are letters written by apostles to saints, pleading with them, say, first of all, say, first of all, say, first of all, prayer and supplication, praying without ceasing, praying always. Let us keep in the blueprint of God and build on the same foundation and pattern that the apostles did, that of prayer, intercession, and supplication with thanksgiving. You make it improve on a lot of things, but you'll never improve upon that. The men of our day who have affected their generation for God Almighty have been men who consistently spent the pre-dawn and early morning hours preparing for each day's involvement. Mr. Spurgeon, 1,200 men met him every Monday night for a prayer meeting. Charles Simeon prayed from 4 until 8 a.m. every day. John Wesley prayed no less than two hours daily and preached no less than four times a day until in his middle 80s. John Welch spent days all day in prayer, thought the day ill spent if he did not spend eight to ten hours in prayer. David Brainerd, the work of David Brainerd among the North American Indians, had its origin in days and nights that Brainerd spent before God in prayer for an endowment of power thrown high for this work. On one occasion, he was moving through the deep snow. The burden for the red man was so heavy upon him that he fell upon his face and prayed. He prayed until his garments were wet with sweat. The sweat turned to ice. His garments were frozen. He wrestled. He wrestled for the souls of the red men he loved. His diary is full of just such experiences. John Knox prayed, God, give me Scotland or take my life. Buffeted by the years, John Knox needed help getting into the pulpit. Then as he prayed for the lost of Scotland, his strength would multiply. The pulpit would shake and threaten to fall apart under the thunder of his preaching and the burden of his soul. Yeah. William Bramwell almost lived on his knees. Edward Payson wore hardwood boards 
into grooves where his knees pressed so often and so long in prayer. Praying hide. Died at 48. Heart moved to the right side of body, but not before hundreds were turned to seeking God. Even Roberts, a young coal miner, oh yes, brought about the Welsh revival. He attended a conference at Wales. He heard Seth Joshua, who led in prayer. And in that prayer, Seth Joshua cried out, Bend us, Lord! Bend us, Lord! And young Evan, for 13 years, had been seeking for revival. When he heard that, he fell on his knees with his arms over the seat in front of him and cried, Lord, bend me! Bend me! Bend me! Bend me! For three months after that, he awoke every night at midnight and prayed until four and sometimes until nine when he had to go to class. He poured out his soul in tears and groanings of intercession for the lost world. The burden of his heart tore him to pieces without musical talent, without eloquence, without any other talents or abilities. He set the whole world a-going, shut down saloons, all, all of the old hardened coal miners. And as the news of this revival spread to other countries, visitors from all over parts of the world came to Wales to visit this minister. Dr. F.G. Meyer with his friend came, and a youth in the congregation stood up and said, I have a request for prayer. And when he made this request, Evan knelt on the platform and began to agonize in prayer. It seemed that his heart would burst under the burden. Dr. Meyer's friend said, that's terrible. I can't stand to hear that man groan. I've got to get up and get out of here or start a course. And Mr. Dr. Meyer said, don't do it. Don't do it. I want this thing to penetrate my heart. I've preached the gospel for 30 years with dry eyes. I've spoken to multitudes without seeing them moved. I want this man's anguish. I want this man's burden to touch my soul. Evan's tears, not his preaching, broke men. He would break down and cry bitterly for God to bend them in an agony of prayer. The tears coursing down his cheeks with his whole frame writhing. Strong men would get up and break down and cry like children. They would fall. Women would shriek. A sound of weeping and wailing would fill the air. Evan Roberts, in an intensity of his agony, would fall in the pulpit while many in his audience fainted. Oh, God. Oh, God. A young coal miner decided, I'm going to do it. I know a man in my generation. I know him well. He has some mighty weapons. He prays no less than two and three hours every day. I saw him one time before I knew him very well, under an old tent by 7.30 or 8 o'clock every morning in a place called Zavala, Texas. It was before Glossolalia. It was in the early 40s. It was before it was popular to have big revivals. I saw him go there at 7.30 or 8 o'clock every morning under that old hot tent. I saw him cross his legs and kneel at the altar and lay his Bible there, and I saw him pray and study there until 4 or 5 in the evening. I saw every night at least 8 to 9 to 10 people every night get the Holy Ghost. He has set a church to pray. He has sent pastors and evangelists and missionaries and witnesses all over this world. He continues to have revival. He continues to preach evangelism. He continues to witness miracles and signs and wonders. He's captured the imagination of an entire city, an entire parish, and an entire state. And judges seek his counsel when they make their decisions. Look into the history of every church revival, every great awakening in the history of the church from the time of the apostles until today has had its early origin in prayer. There have been great awakenings without much preaching and there have been great awakenings without any organization, but there's never been a true awakening without much, much, much prayer. 
the days of Luther, the days of Wesley, the days of Jonathan Edwards, when they fell out while he read his sermon and they clung to something to keep from falling into hell. Oh, give us somebody like those men. Finny, 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 who prayed so that when he got close to the city, people began falling out in their offices. And they said, what's the matter? They said, there's a man outside this city here that's praying for revival to come to this city. say it again, the days of Luther, the days of Wesley, the days of Jonathan Edwards, the days of Finney, and the days of Moody were characterized by the power of prayer and the power of preaching. Listen to me now. They began with prayer. They began with prayer. Revivals began with prayer, but they ended. They ended. Those days ended. Those days ended because they neglected. They neglected. They neglected prayer. We better quit kidding ourselves. We better quit kidding ourselves before there has ever fallen a great benediction upon God's people individually or collectively. It has been preceded by great searchings of heart, breaking up a fallow ground, weighty, ardent, vehement desires, consuming zeal and passion, heavy burden of soul, strong yearnings, groanings, weepings, lamenting, howling, howling, bitter grief, wrestling, falling, prostrate on the face in sackcloth. The most strenuous exercise or sport there is is wrestling. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against that second kingdom up there that I got to get through to get to that first kingdom. And if a lady with a little L will stand in Christ's stead and say, I will not give, I will not give, I've got the keys, I've got power over it all, I'll stand in the gap. You will give. You're stripped. You're defeated. I'm coming. Fasting, confessing, rending garments, pouring water out unto the Lord, repenting. The scriptural pattern has always been when God's people had their backs to the wall. Have you ever been there? No way out. Hemmed in. Surrounded by the enemy. Embarrassed. Say embarrassed. Yeah. Suffering defeat. Weary from battle. Exhausted with human effort. Facing death. Cruel edicts. In bondage. Slavery and oppression. Always without exception. Second Chronicles 7 and 14 becomes operative. If my people, if my people, which are called by my name, will stand in my stead, my earth partner, my earth partner, my earth partner, will, it, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear. Then will I hear from heaven and will heal their land. Listen, prayer is not overcoming the reluctance in God. It is binding on earth that which has already been bound in heaven. The content of all true prayer originates in the heart of God. So it is he who inspires the prayer in the heart of man, and the answer to every God-inspired petition is already prepared before the prayer is uttered. However, God cannot, God cannot, and God will not, God will not answer prayers that are not prayed, that are not prayed, that are not prayed. When we're convinced of this, then faith for the answer becomes easier. For instance, checks used by some business firms require the signatures of two individuals to make them valid. One signature is not enough. This illustrates God's method of operating through the prayers and faith of his church. Both parties must agree to validate a check or promise, but no promise is made good until a redeemed man enters the throne room of the universe, universe and writes his name besides God's, and it's like a safety deposit box in the bank box. The keeper has a key, and you have a key. Neither alone will open the box, but when you hand the keeper your key, she inserts both keys, the door flies open, the storehouse of promises then becomes available to every one of us. And say this, uh, 1,104 promises in the New Testament. I'm going to insert my key with his. 
What's the matter with us? The hour has come and now is when God is calling on his people. Called by his name to exercise this powerful, mighty weapon. You may be surprised at the part we can play in shaping world events through praying and fasting. It has truly been said the fate of this world is in the hands of nameless saints. And a survey of the United Pentecostal Churches would no doubt reveal that a majority of our churches do not even have a regular perennial concerted prayer and fasting commitment. There is still too large a percentage with no special prayer schedules and no definite days of fasting. Yes, we organize days to fast. You have to organize every other area of your life. Here is our basic weakness, not enough emphasis placed on intercessory prayer. That's the highest form of prayer. What has hell to fear other than that of a God-anointed prayer-powered church? What has hell to fear but this church getting on her knees and go to travailing and interceding? Nothing. The gospel moves with slow and timid pace. The gospel moves with slow and timid pace when the saints are not at their prayers every day, every day, every day, every day, every day standing there, every day. You've got to hold what you took yesterday. If you don't, he'll take it away from you like the Arabs are trying to take that away from the Jews. You've got to go every day or he'll take it back. You've got to go every day early and say late. Say every day. Say early. Late and long. There's no need to say that the people won't pray if we have not challenged them with definite prayer plans. It is not enough to say in a general sort of way that we want everybody to pray, but as leaders, but as leaders, we must lead, we must lead, we must lead our people in something definite and specific. We must example it. We've talked about prayer and we have agreed that we know this is the only way to have revival. The time has come that the preachers and their wives, the preachers and their wives, the preachers and their wives must lead, must lead, must lead the people to their knees. If we are to have praying churches, we must be praying leaders. If we're to have praying churches, we must be praying leaders. We cannot lead people where we have not been ourselves. It is difficult for God to use a man whose knowledge is greater than his experience. It is difficult for God to use a man whose knowledge is greater than his experience. You cannot lead people where you have not been. Thomas A. Kempis wrote that. The man of God ought to be more at home in his prayer chamber than before the public. No man should stand before an audience who has not first stood before God. Many hours of communion should precede one hour in the pulpit. And I'm about to close. Steadies the nerves. Defines duty. Stiffens the purpose. Sweetens and strengthens the spirit. Prayer brings power. Prayer is power. How much power do you have? How much prayer have you stored up? There are four and a half billion people crying out for somebody to pray. There are four and a half billion people crying out for somebody to pray. And become a warrior there, and I am more at home there. I cannot go to London right now in a flash, but I can go to London in a flash right now by standing before God for an individual there. I cannot break that person's will, but through intercessory, God can scream in their ears, and God can knock them down, and God can bring them under. I cannot go to Africa today physically, but I can go there in the realm of the Spirit. I can bind, and I can loose, and I can remit, or I can retain. How much power do you have? Four and a half billion people are crying that. The rich man in hell is still praying. The rich man in hell is still praying. Send that church that church to praying. Find my five brothers. He's still praying. He's still praying. I was in Kramer's funeral home just a few weeks ago. And in Kramer's funeral home, 
uh, there was a girl that had lost her sister. She had never, she had never been to a church. She cried out and she said, Lady, I feel something from you. She looked over my shoulder while I was reading to somebody else. I said, may I help you? She said, yes, you can help me. I've got to find help from somewhere. I'm just picking up scraps of paper. I'm listening for somebody somewhere. I thought maybe when I saw you, I felt something, and I thought maybe you would have the answer. Old Brother Urshan, before he died, was in our home. My father and he sat at the table, and we served them. After we had gotten through eating, we retired to the living room. There we began to sing and praise the Lord. It broke out in a prayer meeting. There came a rap at the door. There stood a girl when I opened the door who was walking down Rapide, and she said, I felt something coming from this house, and I need help. She walked in there. These two men, my father and old brother Urshan, laid hands on her and prayed for her, and she received the Holy Ghost. There was a revival broke out there. Here came some more. Here came some more. Backsliders came in. Walking up and down the street. It happened. He's the one who put into my hands. Continual prayer brings continual victory. He said, I and two other Persian boys is responsible for the revival that's in Russia. It's no, it's no small thing that his son, Brother Urshan, is going there. He said, these two boys and I agreed together that we would pray incessantly and without interruption until God brought what we wanted. He said, I was walking down the streets of Chicago one morning, and it was below zero. And he said, while I was walking there, we had agreed that we would pray to and from work. And he said, while I was walking down that street, a motorman pulled over to where I was and said, your ears are falling off. He said, my ears had frozen, and I was not even aware of it. He said, one of the boys on the way to work fell down an elevator shaft. He said, but not before today. There are millions in Russia baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost. What if an all-night prayer meeting would break the deadlock on your church? What if when you get to heaven, you find out that an all-night prayer meeting would have spared your boy? What if when you get to heaven, you find out that an all-night prayer meeting would have spared somebody from going to hell? What if when you get to heaven, you find out that with prayer and fasting, you could have turned your city upside down? Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray.
My children, I have sent speakers to you, but it's my spirit that is anointing your hearts to hear. There is a fortress, a mighty fortress, that has been built to keep you out. But behind the walls, there is the sound of weeping. There is the sight of clutching hands. There are those that are in need. I am the commander. I am the one that knows the weaknesses of that fortress. I am the one that knows how to get to them and bring them out to deliverance. If you will pray, I will lead you. If you will pray, I will show you. If you will pray, I will bring them out through your prayers.
heard from the Lord this morning. We've had two outstanding messages to our hearts, and then this message on prayer. And I have some fears, and I don't want to be negative, but we have a new generation continuously coming on, and I'm afraid that we would learn to play too well, learn to sing too well, learn to preach too well, and not go back to where it all started and get that special anointing that we need from God. Somebody told me a young evangelist preached like a house on fire, but he's watching movies in the motel. And I was trying to put it all together. That's not the way my old pastor taught me. I had a wonderful old pastor. He was an old-timer. He was tough and rough. But he taught me to believe that I needed to pray. I lived in his home. He was my uncle. He's long gone on this earth. But I never, ever lived a day in that home that I didn't hear him pray. I could tell you just how he prayed. I could use some of the words he prayed. I could tell you how he used to kind of hiss through his teeth a little bit in some of those prayers and breathing. Because unmistakably he marked my life. I heard him pray. We'll never learn too well. We may get by for a while. Anybody can prepare sermons, you can read books, and you can put them together. But oh, and anybody can teach Bible studies. But if you want it to work, if you want the people not just to join a church, but get renovated, transformed, regenerated, there has got to be that deep, sincere, fervent prayer behind it all. Oh, we can almost learn how to win the lost. But if we really want them changed in the aura of revival, we have got to pray. I've traveled a lot and made a lot of friends in the last few years. Many of you are here that I've been in your churches. And I do not say this to be critical. I've enjoyed your home and your fellowship and your churches, and some of you have revival churches. But I've been to very few churches where the minister ever said to the yachts, let's go to the church and pray. As an early evangelist, there was nowhere that I went that they didn't do that. It's been a long time since I was an evangelist, traveling in my early ministry. Let me urge you, pastor, when preachers come to your house, take them to the church to pray. Take them to the church to pray. Let them know what kind of emphasis you put on prayer. I've been in a lot of churches where they weren't, there was no prayer room. Before service, I, I would want to pray. But really, there was a meeting here and a meeting there, and there was no place designated as an absolute prayer room where you could go without a disturbance. I don't say that to be critical. I say that maybe to just sharpen your apprehension about it, to say, hey, I'm going home and this might be a good time to turn in your notebook to your plan of action. I'm going home and make a prayer room in my church. I'm going to put a place of prayer in my home where somebody can pray and they won't be disturbed. Nobody's going to be running over their feet 
and kicking the shoes. I'm going to make sure as a pastor that I have a time of prayer before every service where everybody knows. And I'm going to mention it every service, and I'll promise you something. It will die, Pastor, if you don't mention it every service. Wednesday night is service, folks, and it's 7 o'clock before the 7.45 service. That is prayer, and you are expected to be here for prayer. And you've got to be there, Pastor. If you want them to keep coming, they're going to have to see you there. Or if the church is yay big, maybe not. But in a small church of 150 or under, they're going to have to see you there. If you're going to teach Bible studies and they're going to work and your church preaches you, you'll have to do it first. And if you're going to have prayer and you wanted to pray in that prayer room, you'll have to be there in that prayer room with them saying, hey, this is how important prayer is. I've got to preach tonight. I've got to teach a good lesson. And I've prepared it, but I've got to be in this prayer meeting because this is where my people are. And I'm going to set the example of prayer. You might want to put that down in your plan of action in the front of your notebook to make those plans for prayer. It's got to be a priority. It's got to be a priority. Oh, it's not the will of God to have a dead service and dismiss with nobody getting the Holy Ghost and no sinners in the altar. There's only one reason for it, and that is there's no prayer behind it all. There may be a sermon, there may be a Bible study, but there wasn't a prayer to set it on fire. And so when the altar's empty, dismiss and go home. I've been in too many of them. The lost world is still reaching, but there's got to be a power that breaks that opposition that breaks the powers of Satan and reaches their hearts. And the power of prayer is the only thing that can do that. Thank you, Sister Manny. She shattered my heart many years ago, about 1963 or 4, in St. Paul, Minnesota, when she talked about soul winning. And I thought I couldn't live through that session. My heart shattered. And I thought, oh, God, I've got to do it. And then she comes back again with prayer. A great Christian lady. I've lived in their home. I've been in their church. I've ministered there. You can go there any time, the day or night. There's somebody praying. Around the clock. For how many years, Mr. Manning? How many years around the clock? Thirteen years. This meeting would have not been complete without it hearing the voice of experience in prayer. I don't know if it did anything to you, but I'll tell you something. I want prayer renewed in my life. Top shelf priority in my life. That's what I want. Put it down in your plan of action. The things that you intend to do to implement prayer in your church, in your home, in your family. Why are Pentecostal families breaking up? I'll tell you why. There's not enough prayer that's holding that family together. Somebody's broken down in their prayer life. You can't tell me two people are on fire for God and they're separated and walking away. 
at the heart of all of our programs and all of our plans and all of our revivals and we spend thousands of dollars and thousands of hours and lots of hours of anticipation and anxiety and oftentimes we're so busy that behind it all we don't have the thing that makes it work the motor of prayer let's do it differently would you stand with me let's lift our hands and talk to God again hallelujah Hallelujah. 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 Oh, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you for touching us, Lord. My Lord, we thank you for this message from heaven. Oh, shock us and move us. Stir us, Lord, that more than that change us. Change us, Lord. Change us. Let new desire be created, a new determination. 